Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons history podcast. You're listening to episode 4, There's No Disgrace Like Manuel Noriega. Hey hey listeners, I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history, together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss a Simpsons episode and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Pawn what we pawn. Electrocute who we electrocute. And today, I'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 4, There's No Disgrace Like Home, which originally aired on January the 28th, 1990. So, I'll be talking about Manuel Noriega, the former de facto leader of Panama, who was deposed by the US following an invasion back in 1989-1990. Excellent. Okay, so we'll look forward to that. But first, we've got some uh, some housekeeping. So uh, you may remember, well, I hope you remember, on the last edition, Tom gave a, uh, a call-out for anybody who wanted to hear his hamster story. That's right, that's right. So back in episode two, we were discussing the episode Bart the Genius, and we got to a scene where a girl is introducing her experiment with two hamsters. She says that one is the control hamster and the other has been infected with the Staphylococci virus. Now, I got rather indignant at that because Staphylococcus is a bacteria and not a virus. So following that, I did a bit more reading and had a chat to some people and found out a bit more. I also asked on the last episode that I would only tell the story if people requested it. So thanks to Dan Jacobs, Chris Noble and Rachel Waller for doing just that. Yes, and a special shout out to my friend Jamie Brindle, uh, who also asked, but not in the way that we asked him to ask. Okay, fair enough. So I said that there is no such thing as the Staphylococci virus. It turns out there is, but it's not as simple as it might sound. So just like us, bacteria get viruses. Ooh. So we get things like the common cold, shingles and HIV. Bacteria get what are called bacteriophages, or just phages for short, P-H-A-G-E-S. The Staphylococcus bacteria, Staphylococcus aureus to give it its full name, is very common in humans and it's the cause of staph infections. So if you've ever been to hospital because you've had a staph infection, that's caused by Staphylococcus aureus. A Staphylococci virus, therefore, would be any phage that infects S. aureus. While something that could be described as a Staphylococci virus exists, one key question remains. Why inject it into a hamster? Now, with this we can only speculate, but there are some interesting options. Number one, some phages play a role in staph virulence, which makes them symbiotic. Some bacteria have this symbiotic relationship with the viruses in a sort of I scratch my back, you scratch yours type of relationship. So, so she could have been seeing if the virus would make the bacteria more virulent. But for me, the option that's way more interesting is there are phages that are detrimental to the bacteria. So there exists something called phage therapy, where bacterial infections are treated by introducing a phage that then gets rid of the bacteria. So you have a bacterial disease, you get given a virus that then gets rid of the bacteria. So the experiment could be to test the effectiveness of phage therapy against staph infections in hamsters. Now for this to be the case, both hamsters would also have to be infected with the staphylococcus bacteria. Ah, but we we distinctly heard that hamster number two is the control hamster. Ah, yes, but if he's a control, then he would have been infected with the bacteria as well. Ah, I see. I'd always made the assumption that it meant he wasn't infected with the bacteria. Ah, but 
we only know that the main hamster is infected with the virus. Oh, this has so many layers. It does. I, I, I had not. I just hadn't thought this hard about it. It does. It does. And one thing I definitely need to say is that I said, John Vitti, hang your head in shame. I think John Vitti is a genius for saying the Staphylococci virus. But there it is. That's the story of the hamsters. A whole amuse-bouche of biochemistry, I suppose. Excellent. In that <laughs> case, John Vitti, hang your head in triumph. Yes, absolutely. So there we are, the hamsters. Fantastic. Uh, and if you want to know anything else about hamsters, or you just want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at, at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or you can email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, with the, the housekeeping out of the way, and indeed the hamster keeping out of the way, let's go on to There's No Disgrace Like Home, Season 1, Episode 4, air date January 28th, 1990. I know what you're all asking. Gareth, what was the UK number one at the time that this aired? Well, have I got a doozy for you. It was Sinead O'Connor with Nothing Compares to You. Oh, that's a brilliant song. With the number two and just the letter U. As you can easily tell by the misspellings of two and you, which was the fashion of the time, this was written by Prince for a side project called The Family. It would be number one for four weeks, so in upcoming episodes I might tell you a bit about some other tracks that were in the charts. Uh, as I'm entirely out of Nothing Compares to You facts already. <laughs> the US viewership for this episode uh, had a Nielsen rating of 11.2. You might note I sort of jump between scales, it's because basically it's the first one I see. Okay, so the, a Nielsen rating of 11.2 apparently translates as about 10.3 million households. So obviously it doesn't give us a, a great feel for the number of eyes on those televisions, but I guess you could uh, speculate about four per household. Four pairs of eyes, that is. Four... <laughs> No, no, I don't want to be unfair to one-eyed people. So, you know, it's, uh, uh, could, yeah. could just be four eyes. Could be. Do you know what? I'm going to stay away from this whole thorny eyes problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, could, and, be, uh, could be Blinky the fish watching it, in which case you've got three eyes. Exactly, exactly. Uh, in the turnaround from last week, it was beaten by Married with Children and was therefore Fox's second highest rated show of the week. The production number was 7G04 and there is nothing interesting about that, so I'm not quite sure why I said it. Just for continuity with the other episodes, really. The credited writers, though, this is of interest. It's Al Jean and Mike Reese, two huge names in Simpsons lore. And I'm going to tell you about them right now. Alfred Ernest Jean III went to Harvard at 16. Now, that seems a bit early to me, as in the UK we generally go no earlier than 18. So if any American listeners want to clue us in, please do get in touch. As I'm pretty sure Simon Singh mentioned in our second episode, Bart the Storming of the Stasi HQ... He graduated with a bachelor's degree in mathematics. And it was at Harvard uh, that he met Mike Reese, who was studying English. So the two wrote for the Harvard Lampoon, alongside John Vitti, who we also discussed in episode two. After Harvard, they worked on a number of television shows as writers and producers, including It's Gary Shandling's Show, Johnny Carson's iteration of The Tonight Show, and Alf. Remember Alf? He's back! <laughs> and not yet in pog form. <laughs> The two became showrunners for seasons three and four, which are incredibly highly regarded, before leaving to create The Critic for ABC. Oh, do we have to mention The Critic again? I'm afraid we do. And we're going to have to quite a few times oh, as well. Um, unfortunately, it did not connect with audiences and led to some bad blood between Gene Reese, James L. Brooks and Matt Groening for its crossover episode with The Simpsons, A Star is Burns. They worked for Disney from 94 to 97, but returned to The Simpsons occasionally during that time, and Gene eventually returned as showrunner from season 13 onwards. 
and must therefore be credited with arresting the diving quality it was taking around that era. <laughs> Reese also returned as a part-time consultant, and both were involved in writing 2007's The Simpsons Movie. So there we go. We'll probably be hearing from them again very soon and repeatedly, I would have thought. The chalkboard gag for this week. I will not burp in class. I mean, it, it just doesn't really touch where yeah. we're going to go with those, but, you know, it's still motoring along. And the couch gag. Homer is squeezed off the couch and says dough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they're still in sort of proto phase with... Exactly. With couch exactly. gag and chalkboard. They're able to do less and get a bigger reaction. We're not quite at the dancing elephant stage yet. Um, so, what happens? Well, Homer demands that his family be on their best behaviour for the nuclear power plant company picnic. And long story short, they are not. The disaster begins when Homer presents Burns with a gelatin dessert, which it turns out he is not partial to. Marge then proceeds to get drunk while Bart and Lisa raise hell. And worst of all... Homer's attempts at sucking up to Burns fail miserably. After driving his hellion children and his hungover wife back home, Homer takes a long hard look at his family and decides that enough is enough. He drags the family to the dining room table to eat and insists they say grace, which turns into a monologue about Homer's disappointment in his family, which God, of course, has already seen since he is omnivorous. (laughs) He then takes them on a field trip of sorts to peep through other families' windows, seeing such wonders as shirt-wearing and napkins. Homer requests some time to be alone with his thought, which of course means a trip to Moe's Tavern, whereupon he winds up in a fight with Barney, aping a boxing match on the television in a sequence I'd entirely forgotten about. All-Star Boxing, as luck would have it, is sponsored by... (sighs) Dr. Marvin Munro's Family Therapy Centre, and Homer sees this advert from the floor after the fight with Barney goes south. Convinced this could be the answer to his problems, and finding the kids' college fund to be sadly underfunded... Homer pawns his television under heavy protest, and the family attend therapy with the resultant cash. When asked to draw their fears, the whole family draws representations of Homer, except, of course, Homer, who is worried about the bomb. Sensing the family's murderous rage towards Homer, Dr. Munro presents them with padded clubs to batter each other with painlessly, which works fine until Bart realises they're more effective without the padding and clobbers Munro in the shin. That's the best bit. That is the best bit, yes. (laughs) Munro moves to his final idea. The family are strapped into electric chairs and can shock each other in the form of aversion therapy, turning emotional pain into physical pain. This immediately escalates into unadulterated shocking, plus Maggie simply mashing the buttons, causing brownouts in the city and chaos in the therapy centre. Believing them to be beyond help, Munro gives up, but is forced to conform to his guarantee. Family bliss or double your money back. Now the proud owners of $500, The Simpsons are finally united in their quest to buy a new television. One with, and I quote, a 21-inch screen, realistic flesh tones, and a little cart so we can wheel it into the dining room on holidays. The end. Old technology. Yeah. I've got so much to say about this episode. (laughs) Have at it, Tom. Have at it. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, to start off with, this episode just seems wrong. It, yes. it, 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 seem, it seems like they've regressed because remember the Christmas special made the point that Bart and Lisa were going to be different and in this episode they've gone back to being the same. Yes. And the main problem I've got with it is Marge and Homer are the wrong way round. You see, you see Marge get really drunk. Marge never gets really drunk. No. You see Homer concerned about the state of his family and again it should be Marge doing that. Homer just goes with the flow. Yeah. yeah. So... 
It seems yeah. to be a, a, a sort of, an, I don't mean this in the age sense, but almost an immature understanding of, of where The Simpsons are going. And I wonder whether uh, there was a lot of scripts sort of written at the same time after the shorts, uh, mm. only some of which actually had that progression in it. I mean, just, just to quote something that Lisa says in this episode, last one in the fountain's a rotten egg. It's yes. it's not quite Lisa, is it? It's not there. It's not, um, it's not. And there's that bit where she's in the fountain pretending to be a statue and, you know, she's spitting water and it's just like, Lisa, Lisa doesn't do that. No. And, no. you know, when Homer has that image of his family as being, you know, demons and there's, you know, a demon Lisa and a demon Maggie and it's just, no, it's not right. That's not right. That's not what Homer thinks. It's not right at all. Though I do like the bit in that sequence where uh, the, the other family ascends to heaven in their car with uh, Bingo was his name playing in the background. It's just, just a really nicely little animated uh, sequence. Mm. It's something that The Simpsons sort of went away from, was almost being blatantly a cartoon in that sense. So it's interesting to see that here, I think. Mm. Um, I, I prefer what it became, but it's a, it's, a, it's a way it could have gone. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I do like how that family appear in the therapy centre as well. That's... Uh... <laughs> That's quite. That's quite a nice little joke. I think my uh, my favourite exchange in the episode uh, between Homer and Marge is uh, where Homer says, "Sometimes I think we're the worst family in town," and Marge suggests, "Maybe we could move to a larger community." <laughs> sort of shows a, a lack of wishing to grow there. I think. But, I um, think so. Yeah. So, are you uh, are you ready for some debuts? Oh yes, because there's quite a lot in this episode. There, there's there's a load. We have Dr. Marvin Monroe, of course, the less popular brother of tattoo artist Mervyn Monroe, <laughs> who was seen in the first episode, voiced by Harry Shearer, and appears sporadically throughout the series, but more frequently in early episodes, appearing four times in season one alone. He's not well thought of in fan circles, or indeed in my brain, due largely to his annoying voice. Matt Groening seems to agree. And the gravelly voice itself was such a strain on Shearer's throat that the character was killed off-screen, with Mr. Burns being taken to the Marvin Monroe Memorial Hospital uh, in uh, Who Shot Mr. Burns? Part 2. However, Monroe later appears alive in Season 15, Episode 10. That's in a mere 319 episodes' time. That's Diatribe of a Mad Housewife. uh, And he turns up to the book signing for Marge Simpson's debut novel, The Harpooned Heart. When Mars tells him they thought he was dead, he says he's been very sick. Okay. That is the only explanation. Yeah. To promote further confusion, he appears as a ghost in Flanders Ladder, season 29, episode 21, which I saw today. Okay. It was originally aired on the 20th of May, 2018, so it's very up-to-date, and Sky are particularly up-to-date in their episodes at the moment. A couple of things I just want to mention about Flanders Ladder. Sorry for the slight <laughs> digression. Okay. But um, I noticed a, uh, a reference in it to friend of the podcast, Simon Singh. A blackboard in a dream sequence shows an equation marked Roots of Singh. Wow. That, if solved, is meant to give you the sort of numbers of the letters of the alphabet that will spell sing. Now that I didn't know. Oh, I wonder if Simon knows. We might have to tell him. Hopefully. Hopefully he does. I also took the liberty of working out when we would get to review Flanders Ladder. Yeah, okay, go on. I've so been wondering about this. That is episode 639, and we've done four, if, yeah. if you count this one, which I am doing. Okay. Now, I, I'm just going to say the answer I came up with, and if any of our... I think we have some very clever listeners. If any of them would like to prove me wrong, I'm more than happy to be proved wrong on this. But my prediction is Wednesday the 15th of October 2042, assuming that- a pattern of recording one episode 
every second Wednesday. That's that sounds about right to me. That's that, that's what I very quickly worked in, out in my head about 20, 20 25 years. Excellent. Okay. Um, yeah. Here's to another twenty five years. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, yeah. So he appears as a ghost in Flanders Ladder, and there is a Treehouse of Horror segment where he reveals that he's stuck between life and death. But these are non-canon, oh, so I, I don't really know what we can do about that. Another debut, sort of, is Itchy and Scratchy. Oh, yes. They were in the shorts, but this is their uh, uh, sort of full-universe debut. America's favourite ultra-violent cat and mouse team, starring Bart and Lisa's favourite cartoon, which is usually broadcast as a segment of the Krusty the Clown show. A very, very brief note on their history, which is retconned in by later episodes, and we will discuss this in uh, deeper detail when we get to them. Itchy the Lucky Mouse was created in 1919 by Chester J. Lampwick, and first debuted in the cartoon short Manhattan Madness, where he runs afoul of an Irishman and encounters Theodore Roosevelt. Scratchy the Cat was presumably created or plagiarised by Oscar Myers Sr., and first appeared in That Happy Cat in 1928. The two were teamed up for the first time later that year in Steamboat Itchy. Our lawyers tell us that any resemblance between these characters and any iconic Disney characters is entirely coincidental. But it clearly isn't. <laughs> for now, I'll just leave with a single irrefutable statement. In the Itchy and Scratchy and Friends hour, disgruntled goat had his moments. <laughs> we also get to see for the first time police officers Eddie and Lou. Now, we heard last time that Smithers was miscoloured as having a darker-hued skin, and this time Lou, who is most commonly, in fact, basically always depicted as African-American, is shown as yellow, which is the Simpsons' equivalent of white. Uh, he would not get his more traditional ethnicity until his third appearance in Season 2's Bart vs. Thanksgiving. And finally, for debuts, a first mention of the Hounds. Oh, yes, of course. Though we don't get Burns' iconic cry of, Release the Hounds... We do hear him hasten the end of the party by announcing that the hounds will be released in 10 minutes. History does not record whether or not they're the ones with bees in their mouths, and when they bark, they shoot bees at you. <laughs> that only leaves me with, did you know? Yep, go for it. Less of a did you know, more of a, more of a did you notice, to be honest. Uh, we get an early reference to Mr Burns' inability to remember Homer's name, as Smithers hands him cue cards to allow him to create basic greetings at the picnic. Other than calling Bart Brat, he does a bang-up job. But this scene will be subverted in a mere 98 episodes time, season 5, episode 21, Lady Bouvier's Lover, where Smithers tampers with the cards to make Burns think the Simpsons are the Flintstones. And finally, the chant of One of Us, One of Us, from the Demonic Simpsons family, is a reference to the 1932 Todd Browning movie Freaks, a film that was so controversial and shocking at the time that the lady who attended a test screening threatened to sue the studio, which was Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, as she believed it was responsible for her suffering a miscarriage. The film was banned in the UK for 30 years, not because of that court case, but just, just in general, and was a big influence on the early work of the American proto-punk band The Ramones, who would later play at a Springfield nuclear power plant soiree themselves. Mm. And there we go. That is season one. Episode 4, There's No Disgrace Like Home, which brings us to another disgrace. Yes, absolutely. Now, for this episode, the title has really synced up quite nicely. So the title of this episode is called There's No Disgrace Like Manuel Noriega. And this is the story of how the military dictator of Panama rose to power and was eventually removed by the USA. 
And he did some fairly disgraceful things during his time. This is probably an inappropriate thing to say, but I'm really looking forward to this one. I've, <laughs> I've heard the name Manuel Noriega quite a bit, but yes. I honestly have no idea of uh, who he is or what he did. Yes, and it's a very complicated story, which takes in the Cold War, drugs, internet... Oh, I'll just leave the microphone, I'll pick that up, I'll just wait till that plane goes past. Plane crashes. Yeah. Yes! <laughs> Oh, I've got to keep that in now. <laughs> that won't make any sense otherwise. Okay, so now that that plane's gone past, first, a little information about Panama. Panama is of massive strategic importance, especially to the USA, because of its location. If you think about the Americas, starting from the north, there's Canada, then to the south, there's the USA, then Mexico, where the continent tapers off into Central America. And Central America, politically, is comprised of several small countries, including Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, etc. And we'll hear more about Nicaragua in a later show. And just before Central America hits Colombia and the continent of South America, there is Panama. And the narrowest point between its Atlantic and Pacific shores is just 30 miles. So its location made the Panama Isthmus the ideal location to try and build a canal to link the two oceans. France started to construct one in 1881. The USA took over the project in 1904 and officially opened it 10 years later. The existence of the canal meant that ships could go from the Atlantic to the Pacific and vice versa without going all the way around South America. Prior to the completion of the canal, a ship going between New York and San Francisco, had to sail around Cape Horn, the southernmost point of South America, and this 12,000-mile trip took 67 days. After the canal was completed, approximately 8,000 miles were eliminated from the trip. So if you're taking 8,000 miles off one trip, imagine how that scales up, because... You're not just talking about ships that go from the east coast of the US to the west coast. You're also talking about ships that come in from Southeast Asia. So China, Japan, Philippines, wherever. So it's hugely, hugely important for international trade. And until relatively recently, the ownership of the canal had been a pretty contentious issue. So Spain controlled the region until 1821, when Panama became a part of neighbouring Colombia. Although attempts at succession were made throughout the 19th century. It wasn't until 1903 when Panama declared independence and signed the Hay Bunau Varia Treaty with the United States. Oh yeah, which we've, which we've all heard of. Yes. Yeah. Now bear in mind there's a lot of Spanish names in this story which I've only read and haven't said out loud, so this could be fun. So this made the independent Panama a democracy, but it also established the Canal Zone which was a strip of land that was assigned to the US to build the canal. So this is a small strip of land where the canal's go going to go, and the USA has got control over that. That's considered sovereign US territory, like an embassy would in Australia, for example. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the focus of our story, one Manuel Noriega. He was born in Panama City in roughly 1934, a bit further into that later. He had a tough childhood. Panamanian society was undeniably racist. So he had white people at the top, black people at the bottom, and everyone else in the middle somewhere. His father was well off and white, while his mother was, say, mixed race, you know, the term they used at the time. His parents' affair was an illicit one, and he and his mother were sent away from Panama City with money from his father. 
So unfortunately for the young Noriega, his mother died of TB when he was very young and he was looked after by his godmother. So, you know, he's already got a very, very troubled child here. So while at school, he would partake in several activities that would shape his future. You know, he clearly wanted to be a leader. And my favourite little story is that he used to play baseball with other children. But before the game started, he would insist on reading out a short speech or a poem. Do you know who that reminds me of? That reminds me of Rick from The Young Ones. (laughs) Listen to me, everyone, listen to me! I I want to read you my poem! Oh, obviously, uh, shows he had a flair for public speaking, which I'm sure did him well in his later career. Yeah, absolutely. While at school, he also met his older brother, Luis, who introduced him to left-wing politics. He joined the youth wing of Panama's Socialist Party and joined in protests against the US presence in Panama. And... Bit of a flag story. Some Panamanian students in 1964 tried to protest against the Panama Canal by planting a Panamanian flag in the canal zone. You know, so that you know that caused a bit of upheaval. What is the Panamanian flag? As Pan- in, what does it look like? The Panamanian flag is really, really good. It's one of my favourite designs of the flag. So it's so it's in quarters, and within the top left corner and bottom right corner quarters, there are stars representing the continents of North and South America. Ah. And the other quarters are blank. They're just colour. I think one's red and one's blue. This is off the top of my head. And they're meant to represent the oceans. Okay. So it's a brilliant design that just really encapsulates what Panama is all about. That's that's really good, actually. I, I like the I like the backstory there. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to remember to tweet that one out so uh, yeah, everyone can okay. enjoy it with us. Okay. He also began to work for the CIA, getting paid $10.70 for his services in 1955. So he was basically paid to spy on all his left-wing chums. Oh. So you've got a guy who's getting into socialist left-wing politics, but he's also working with the CIA. So already we're getting really complicated. Okay. So as he approached the end of his time in school, he wanted to become a doctor, like Che Guevara. Yep. But he didn't get the grades. So instead, he applied to the Chorios Military School in Peru, but there was a problem. He was too old. So with the help of his brother, they forged a birth certificate, making him three years younger, and he got in. Ah, hence the confusion about his uh, date of birth. Exactly, exactly. So after graduating, he joined the Panama National Guard, and he was posted to the city of Colón. While there, his commanding officer was a guy called Omar Torrios, very important. And Torrios and Noriega formed a strong bond, almost a father-son relationship. You remember, uh, Noriega wouldn't have had any strong male role models. A bit like Bart Simpson, really. Yeah. And during this time, he would gain a really horrible reputation for violence against women. So in 1962, he was accused of beating up and raping a prostitute, but he was protected by Torrios. He continued to get into serious trouble, being confined to barracks for the things he did, and eventually he was sent away, he was sent to a remote posting. As indeed has been any uh, sympathy we may have had for Noriega at this stage. Yeah, I'd say so. Whilst in the National Guard, Noriega took his opportunities to study at the School of the Americas. So this was located at Fort Gulick, an American army base in the Canal Zone. So that was an advantage that Panama had. I suppose you could call it an advantage that Panama had with that Canal Zone. There were American institutions in it which they had access to. He took courses in intelligence and jungle warfare, and even went to Fort Bragg in North Carolina to do a course in psychological operations. Ah. So he's learning a lot, and he's got 
plenty of contact with the US military. So during the 1960s, the Cold War was in full swing, and the US was keen to stop the spread of communism and socialism. Part of his duties in the National Guard was to infiltrate the unions of the United Fruit Company. You know, they're hugely important to the history of Central America, the United Fruit Company. That's where the term Banana Republic comes from. But we might, oh. we might talk about that a bit more in a future show. Okay. So in 1968, Noriega would get a taste of Panamanian politics. He was posted to Chiricoy during the presidential election. Now, that's one hell of a story in itself, so I'll just summarise it here. The sitting president was a guy called Rodolfo Chiari. He ordered Torrios to harass and disrupt the party of Arnulfo Arias, and Torrios passed that duty on to Noriega. So despite this, Arias won the election and immediately began a purge of the National Guard. You know, so he said, right, right, you guys tried to stop me winning the election. Right, I'm getting rid of you. So his presidency lasted 11 days before the National Guard staged a coup and deposed him. So following this, there was a power struggle between the coup leaders... So, you know, everyone's fighting everyone else. A struggle which Torreos would come out on top. But that's not the end of it. Supporters of Arias attempted a guerrilla uprising, which Noriega put down in his role of head of intelligence. And in 1969, Torreos decided to go on holiday to Mexico. So, you know, military dictator out of the country. And in his absence, a coup was launched against him, which Noriega defeated. So this put Torreos in a very strong position, because if you're a military leader and you survive a coup, then you're looking good. So it cemented Noriega's role as his right-hand man. Torres referred to Noriega as his little gangster. So after all the chaos and coups, things stabilised a bit. Torres gave himself the incredibly bombastic title of Maximum Leader <laughs> in 1972. Negotiations began with the United States on the future of the Panama Canal. Noriega reveled in his role as chief of intelligence. He had some 1,300 Panamanians exiled, and his tenure was marked with plenty of intimidation and harassment, even murders. And during this time, he developed a rivalry with the vice minister for health, a guy called Hugo Spadafora, who also knew about Noriega's drug dealings. So this is something that makes things even more complicated, the whole drugs issue especially cocaine. So, as mentioned earlier, Panama shares a border with Colombia and it forms part of the direct land link to the US. So, cocaine trafficking through Panama was pretty rife and Noriega was involved in this trafficking. He was making quite a bit of money from it. And on top of this, from 1971, Noriega was on the CIA payroll. So, before he was working as, you know, as an agent, as an informant on an ad hoc basis, but in 1971 they gave him a regular salary. And he was providing the states with information about the Cuban government. And during the Panama Canal negotiations, the US took the decision to wiretap the phones of Panamanian officials. And Noriega found out about this, and rather than go public, he used it as a bargaining chip in the negotiations. It became known as the Singing Sergeant Affair. So, you know, the, the, this is what amazes me about this story. There is so much going on. I mean, I, I, the face I'm pulling at this stage is just a, <laughs> a, a, a mixture of confusion and total confusion. Yes. It's, you know, it, yes. this is... We, we haven't even got to the point of the story, and we're already... Yeah, we're in cloud cuckoo land at yeah, this stage. Pretty much, we're pretty through much. the looking glass here, people. <laughs> so in 1977, these discussions on the status of the Panama Canal came to a conclusion when Torreos signed a series of treaties with the current US president, who was 
Jimmy Carter. Remember history's greatest monster. Yes. That's for Simpson's words, not mine. So these treaties stated that control of the canal would pass to Panama in 1999. And it's one of the reasons why Jimmy Carter was so unpopular, especially with conservatives. It's like, what are you doing signing away the Panama Canal? You know, one of our most important things for international trade. Why are you signing it off to these guys in Panama? We can't trust them. So everything changed in 1981, when, to make matters even more complicated, Torrios died in a plane crash. Ah. Now, it would be very easy to suspect sabotage on the part of Noriega, so that he could take the place of Torrios. You know, a very common thing to do. If you're the number two in a military dictatorship, you try and take out whoever's number one, and then you take over. Uh, But there have been investigations, and they've concluded that the plane came down simply because of mechanical failure. But even so... Noriega did not immediately come to power following the death of Torreos. So a general called Florencio Flores Aguilar stepped into Torreos's shoes, but he was removed in 1982, so he lasted a year, by a group of military leaders that included Noriega, a guy called Diaz Herrera, and Ruben Dario Paredes. So you can kind of think of them as a bit of a triumvirate, really. Yeah. So Paredes became head of the National Guard therefore effectively the head of state, and entered a pact with Noriega in which Paredes would step away from the army and he'd be the presidential candidate of the party backed by Noriega. And in return, Noriega would become head of the military. So however, although Paredes gave up his position, Noriega did not support him in his bid for the presidency. Oh, don't know exactly why, presumably because he just didn't like him. He supported a guy called Nicholas Barletta instead. So the 1984 election was contested between Barletta and Arnolfo Arias. Remember him from earlier on in the story? He's still hanging around. He's back in POG form? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm amazed that Arias wasn't done away with somehow. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's going way back, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Following massive vote rigging, Barletta won by a slim margin and became president. However, because he was a puppet of Noriega, Noriega was effectively the de facto dictator of Panama. And in 1985, Hugo Spadafora, remember him, the vice health minister, decided to act against Noriega, and he decided to return to Panama, having been in Nicaragua. And at this point, the story gets just a little bit grim. So Spadafora's body was found in a post bag near the Costa Rican border, Missing his head. Ooh. I won't go into details, but he had been horrendously tortured. This, of course, caused uproar. You know, an enemy of Noriega being killed in such a horrible way. And Barletta resigned as president over it, which you know, soured relations with the US even further. So in 1987, Herrera, remember one of the triumvirate, he contemplated his own coup when Noriega was out of the country, but decided against it. So instead he did a deal with Noriega where Noriega would step down and allow Herrera to succeed him. Sound familiar? So not surprisingly, Noriega went back on the deal and announced he would continue to head the military for the next five years. However, Herrera was not going to take this lightly and responded by publicly accusing Noriega of everything under the sun. So he accused him of rigging the 1984 election, murdering Spadafora, drug trafficking, and he even accused him of murdering Torreos by planting a bomb on his plane. Almost all of which... He was actually linked to. Yes. Except except the main one. 
except for killing his predecessor. So this led to widespread rioting in Panama City, which Noriega cracked down on hard. So Noriega charged Herrera with treason. Following this, the US Senate passed a resolution asking Noriega to step down until Herrera could be tried, which I think is, you know, it's just indicative of how the US treated Panama. They almost treated Panama as a colony, really. Mm. I don't know if that's because it was the US and come to the end of the Cold War and they were thinking, well, we can do what we like, or if they were thinking, right, well, the Panama Canal, that's our territory, and, you know, that's sort of part of Panama, so we get a say in who runs it. So, in response, Noriega sent government workers to protest outside the US embassy, a protest which quickly turned into a riot. And as a result of this, the US suspended all military assistance to Panama, and the CIA stopped paying Noriega his salary. I mean, you could argue that the writing was on the wall for Noriega at this point. He's massively fallen out with the States. And a lack of American support was devastating to the Panamanian economy. It defaulted on its international debts, and its economy shrank by 20%. So already in a bad place with the US, a US federal court indicted Noriega on drugs trafficking charges in 1988. I've always found it really strange, you know, going back to what we just said, what jurisdiction does the US have over <laughs> the leader of Panama? Yeah, he's not doing it in America. No, exactly, exactly. So chaos would follow that in 1989. There was another presidential election in which Noriega's candidate Carlos Duque, that's D-U-Q-U-E, which I assume is Duque, or Duque maybe, Ah, no, no relation to Count Dooku from the uh, <laughs> from Star Wars, Star Wars uh, prequels. So Noriega's candidate was on course to lose by a landslide. You know, he was going to get completely wiped out. And Noriega blocked the results and voided the election, causing Jimmy Carter, you know, he's, he's back into the picture, he was there as an international observer. Boo! <laughs> and he declared that the election had been stolen. So the, air quotes, winner of the election was a politician by the name of Guillermo Endera. He and his vice presidential candidates tried to go on a tour of Panama City in an open-top car. You know, as you do after you win an election. Oh dear. Mm. That that doesn't uh, bring up any lessons from history. No, no. Unfortunately, they were intercepted by Noriega's forces, and pictures of them badly beaten were broadcast around the world, further tarnishing Noriega's reputation. And the US recognised Endera as the president of Panama. Several members of the military attempted a coup against Noriega, but he had this put down and the leaders executed. Following this, Noriega adopted the title of maximum leader. Ah, okay. So he's really trying to assert his control now. Soon after that, the US invaded. The official reason was that a Marine called Robert Paz had been shot and killed in an incident involving Noriega's troops. But the invasion had been planned for months. It was just, right, we need any reason. So, you know, as soon as something happens, we go into Panama. And President George H.W. Bush launched it on December 20th, 1989. It involved 27,000 personnel and was condemned by the UN by 75 votes to 20. You know, US invading just because they want to, really. They've got no pretense under international law to do it whatsoever, and the UN agreed. So the US met very little resistance and soon took control Uh, Nevertheless, of course, there were casualties, with the UN estimating that around 500 civilians were killed. Noriega went into hiding, taking refuge in the Vatican Embassy. The US then used PSYOPs techniques, which Noriega would have been very familiar with, to try and get him out. They blasted loud rock music at him for hours and turned a nearby field into a helipad. So basically trying to blast him out with noise. Do we have any idea what songs were deployed? 
Oh, wow. Uh, I personally don't, but that would make one hell of a Christmas album. Absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking there's a playlist in there. Um, yeah. If anyone knows what songs are... Well, you know where to find us. Yeah, yeah. There's an episode of The Day Today where they start a war. They, <laughs> they release a compilation album at the end of the episode with all, with all hits from wartime. It's amazing. So after 10 days of being blasted with music and whatever else, he surrendered on January 3rd, 1990. So just a few weeks before There's No Disgrace Like Homer was broadcast in the States. And the US took him to Miami where he was considered a prisoner of war, which is a really, really odd legal status because he was wanted as a drug trafficker by a US federal court, but they had to treat him like a prisoner of war. You know, a very strange situation to be in. So he was convicted in April 1992 on eight of the ten charges against him, which included drug trafficking, money laundering and racketeering. After his sentence was reduced for good behaviour, uh, he became a born-again Christian while in prison. Quite odd when you consider the things he got up to. And he was released in September 2007. So you might think that would be the end of it, but while he was in prison in the States, he was tried in absentia for money laundering in Paris. He bought about $3 million worth of apartments in Paris with drug money. So he was extradited to France, convicted, and sentenced to seven years in prison. He didn't serve the whole seven years, but once he had finished his sentence in France, he was then extradited back to Panama. So, you know, he's been passed around all over the place. He was extradited back to Panama in 2011 to face trial for crimes he committed while he was head of his regime. While he was in prison, he was diagnosed with a benign brain tumour. It was eventually operated on in 2017, but complications arose and Noriega died from them at the ripe old age of 83. Which isn't bad for a military dictator. Not at all. And in a sign of these more modern times, Noriega's death was announced by Panamanian President Juan Carlos Varela on Twitter. And he tweeted... The death of Manuel Noriega closes a chapter in our history. His daughters and his relatives deserve to bury him in peace. And that brings to a close the story of Manuel Noriega. I thought you were going to tell me something bizarre happened at the funeral there. No, um, no. <laughs> okay, well, at least at least things finally calmed down then. That was amazing. That was a, a roller coaster ride. My mind is blown. <laughs> um, ugh. Unthinkable. It, it's it's just it's just such an it's such an extraordinary story because of course I've just told a very distilled down version of it and researching this story it's like an onion because you have to work out who everyone is and people pop up you know within twenty year gaps. Spadafora was part of Torres's government and Spadafora tries to come back in the mid eighties. You've also got Arias, who runs for president several years after he originally did. It's it's quite the story. And it does tie into what was going on in Nicaragua. Because I don't think I even mentioned, actually, how Noriega was supposed to be supporting the US militarily in Central America. But uh, he ended up supporting Cuba, essentially. Oh, so that's, that's not the desired effect, really, is it? But, uh... No, absolutely, absolutely. Because in many ways, it's amazing he lasted so long because he was playing such a dangerous game because the position where Panama was in, because Panama's a really small country, about 4 million people, the population is today. Obviously, the US once controlled the Panama Canal. If, you know, as in Team America World Police, if the Panama Canal was blown up, that would be devastating for the American economy. But he also had to deal with the Cold War, because you had the Sandinistas in 
Nicaragua. You had Castro in charge in Cuba. There was something going on in El Salvador as well. And then you had the drugs issue. So you had all these things that came together and he had so many plates to spin. For me, I'm just amazed that it took until when it did for the US to, to invade and get rid of him. But yeah, it's, it's quite an extraordinary story. Absolutely. And worth mentioning that we'll be back in that part of the world again in a future episode. Oh, we will. We yeah. certainly will. We certainly will. If you do want to get in touch with us and uh, tell us what the usual age to uh, go to university in America is, um, or, you know, just give out to us about anything that you fancy, uh, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus or email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org. And I'm also going to throw in the plug, which I forgot to do last time uh, for my blog over at uh, Atomic Sourpuss, because I keep forgetting to tell anybody that I do it. And literally nobody is reading it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we're done with The Simpsons over there, which makes this an entirely inappropriate advertisement. And we're now into the history of Final Fantasy. Ooh. Wow, wow. I suppose if we're doing plugs, I do have a website. It's skepticcanary.com. I very, very rarely blog there anymore. The last blog post was just promoting this podcast. And the one before it was me moaning about how rubbish the new Crystal Maze is. So enjoy that. Amen. Uh, And that's it for us. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Cheers, everyone. Bye.